Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. In late 2013, many of Northeast Ohio's leading institutions gathered for a day-long summit in an effort to find solutions to the region's heroin epidemic. A community action plan was formulated over the course of multiple planning meetings and finalized after the summit. The purpose of this document was to serve as kind of a master plan as we move forward to address the epidemic here in Northeast Ohio. Since then, several important steps have been achieved, thanks in part to the efforts of what came to be known as the U.S. Attorney's Task Force on Heroin and Opioids. Narcan is more readily available, and its use is much more widely accepted. The region's largest hospital systems have come together to work collaboratively to educate doctors and change prescribing practices. Law enforcement has embraced new protocols and techniques that have resulted in long prison sentences for drug traffickers and indictments of individuals across the globe. Hundreds of community meetings combined with multimedia public awareness campaigns have informed virtually everyone in Northeast Ohio that this is a crisis in our own backyard, and it affects friends, neighbors, relatives, virtually all of us. On September 6, 2018, the group reconvened to review progress and update the action plan. The conference included four panels where leaders shared their progress. Today's podcast is the first of a two-part series on the U.S. Attorney's Conference, Opioids, a crisis still facing our entire community. We begin with opening remarks from Justin Herdman, the United States Attorney for the Northern District of Ohio. So five years ago uh, at this time, I was, uh, as Dave mentioned, I was an assistant U.S. Attorney prosecuting uh, national security cases. So these were people like the self-proclaimed anarchists who tried to put float the bridge, the Route 82 bridge. They were people like al-Qaeda supporters who were trying to send cash overseas to buy explosives and other weapons or to get trained to kill members of our military overseas. So very important cases. Um, but in those days, five years ago, there's no doubt um, that if you asked anybody at the Department of Justice what the number one priority of the Department of Justice was, they would have told you it was national security cases. Well, I'm here to say as a U.S. Attorney that national security remains a top priority for us at the Department of Justice. But there's no other issue that consumes as much of my own personal time or really the attention of the Department of Justice as it is the crisis that we're all here to discuss today. Uh, and that goes all the way up to the top, um, from the White House on down. The Attorney General was here two weeks ago. The reason he was here two weeks ago was to announce a number of enforcement initiatives that we have underway related to opioids. Um, and, and I think that illustrates the importance not only of the issue to the Department of Justice, but also the importance of the Northern District of Ohio and our state in the department's strategies to combat this crisis. So in 2013, at the time I was prosecuting national security cases, we in law enforcement began to realize that there was something underway, that there was a different kind of threat to our community. Uh, and that's one that we know now has killed hundreds of thousands of Americans. So think about that for a second, hundreds of thousands of Americans. And that's true when you look at the numbers. Um, and those people are our neighbors, they're our relatives, and they're our friends. 
And I, obviously, I don't have to go through a year-by-year -year recitation of all the grim statistics that we see every day when you work in this line of, uh, when you're in this line of work. Uh, whether you're a physician or whether you're a police officer, or someone who works in, in treatment and recovery, whether you're just uh, uh, a concerned citizen, whether you're somebody who's unfortunately lost someone, you, you know the ramifications of this epidemic. Uh, you're sitting here today, you know that. Suffice it to say, and this is, and this is trying to put uh, a summary point on what we're facing, this is the biggest public health crisis and the biggest law enforcement crisis that any of us have ever seen. And the problem is very different today than it was even five years ago. The number of pills being prescribed has gone down steadily, and that's, that's good news. The number of deaths associated with heroin has gone down, and again, that's good news. But that good news has been dwarfed by the devastating effects of fentanyl. We see people now who are dying from fentanyl, fentanyl-laced cocaine, uh, even cocaine that is purer than cocaine that we've seen in years past. And that's why I think it's important that we start to talk about this crisis not only as one that's focused on opioids, even though that is the predominant killer still, but we, we always remain flexible in our awareness and in our vigilance to identify additional threats that are on the horizon. And that's why I'm often speaking about a drug overdose crisis, a narcotics overdose crisis. Um, yes, opioids are central to this, um, but, it, but it's also important for us to keep an eye on the additional narcotics threats that are out there. So most of the people here today are experts in your respective fields, and today you'll hear from other experts. Uh, you're going to hear about the progress that has been made, about innovative programs that are showing positive results, uh, also important gaps that need to be addressed, what needs to be done and what needs to be done most urgently. Five years ago in this building, many of our region's most vital institutions came together to develop a community action plan to address this crisis. Many of those goals were achieved, others were modified, and there were others that did not happen. And when you registered, you should have received a draft version of an updated action plan. We hope that will serve as a guide as we continue to tackle this epidemic in coming years. But this, this is a draft, so it's, it's a, a document that is still very much in progress. And this afternoon, you'll be asked to join a discussion in one of four of our subcommittee areas. There's law enforcement, there's treatment and healthcare, there's education and prevention, and there's data and analytics. We're asking you to engage with those subcommittees to help refine the plan that is in front of you. And please be engaged, please be very honest and candid. Ask yourself and ask the groups that you, you attend, uh, the subcommittee that you, you, you support this afternoon, ask what makes sense in this plan. Ask what sounds like a waste of time. Ask what is already being, being done by another group that may not be in the room or may not be uh, part, of the, part of the task force. And then, and I urge you, this is, this is I think perhaps the most important part of this, Ask who is going to be responsible for seeing through these objectives. What is the time frame in which we will hold these people accountable? Uh, without these last two, I think we really run the risk of talking a good game today, but not acting on the goals that we set here. Special Agent Tim Plankin, who is in charge of the Detroit Field Division of the Drug Enforcement Administration, shared how investigations have evolved over the last five years. So what we really didn't get into uh, when somebody overdosed is was typically they would respond and take them to the hospital, Narcan, etc., and treat them, but there was no law enforcement investigation. The idea was not to, to go after the, the, the addict or, or, or the, the, uh, the, the person who overdosed. The idea is to go after the source of supply because typically what would happen is that source of supply was not only causing one overdose, they're causing dozens if not hundreds of overdoses. And so our, our goal was, was to get the addict treatment and, and, and push them in, in that direction. 
and to go after their, that source of supply. And that's what those hidden teams did. And we started to create them or participate in them. Cleveland uh, Police Department had their own that they had already started. They're the template, national template, and have evolved and continue to be the national template for how overdose death investigations uh, investigation are conducted. We merely teamed up with them. We created other ones in some of the other areas I covered. We get the, the information that's, that's at the scene, and they work at the, the uh, whatever happened at the scene so we can work towards the source of supply. And make no mistake, these sources of supply ultimately are the cartels in Mexico. So when I speak of source of supply, I'm not talking about, you, know, you, you go from, from the, the victim, the overdose, to that's probably street level source of supply. And that street level is being fed by, by a larger source of supply and all the way up the chain. And that's all the way back to Mexico. And as things evolved over time, and, and it really has become another major part of the problem here is, uh, China in, in fentanyl and analogs, synthetics of, of fentanyl coming in from China. Some of them are scheduled and illegal, some of them are not, but they're just as dangerous, if not far more dangerous than fentanyl. And, they're, and they're, you can get them through the dark web. Uh, that's another way we've evolved over time. Is back then, the dark web, back then, five years ago, it's like that was long, long ago. But back then, it, it was, it, we were playing in the dark web as far as investiga investigations go. But we've just ramped that up significantly now as to how that how that works um, because there's a lot of fentanyl that can be shipped in for uh, high school kids and college kids and, and just anybody could order fentanyl if they knew how to navigate through the dark web. At times you could even do it through just the pure the normal internet as well. Um, we have a lot of challenges with with the, with going dark as as they say. And if anybody doesn't really know what that means, because I, I I didn't when that, when they first started bringing it up several years ago. Encryption. So it, it, the reason why you can navigate through the dark web and do some of these things through the internet is, is the, everybody wants their protection and their privacy, and, and that's important. But one of the problems with that is that creates law enforcement and causes us to go dark, if you will. We can't we can't intercept uh, traffic, drug trafficking, uh, you know, just the different activities and the different. And so when we talk about a circle back a little bit to the information on these these heroin over deaths death overdose uh, teams, that information goes into databases and we, cr we crunch that database because we're looking for the source of supply. So we may take a phone number from somebody that's that's at the scene who bought it from a source of supply and work that back all the way, potentially our objective is to work it back all the way to that source in Mexico or China or wherever it may be. I sat down with Mike Tobin, a key contributor and organizer for the task force, who shared with me a recent case where the new investigative process came into play. Fifteen years ago, it was not uncommon that if someone died of a drug overdose, uh, police would roll up on the scene and they would just call the morgue and the body would be put in a bag and, and taken away and that would be it. Um, not to be... Uh, to, to overly simplify, but I think that the general view as well, it's a junkie who's dead, that's the end of it. Um, when Five years ago, when we started to see the surge in deaths, we knew on the law enforcement side we had to deal with this differently. And, and one of the responses to that was uh, developing um, a protocol for how you deal with these deaths and uh, what we call HIT-IT teams, uh, heroin-involved uh, death investigation team. Essentially, it, it's really just treating uh, a fatal overdose as you would a murder or any other crime scene. Uh, detectives get there, they assess the situation, and they look for, for evidence and clues. Uh, that could be um, looking uh, at someone's cell phone to see who they've been in contact with. Um, that could include um, you know, fingerprinting and other, other testing uh, to determine if there's DNA evidence. The goal is to figure out who uh, sold this person the drug, drugs that killed them, and then taking that 
uh, information, that evidence, and deciding what to do with that. Uh, in some cases, if it's if it's two friends using together and one died and, and one didn't, um, you know, maybe we use some discretion on what sorts of charges to file or not or, or not file. But in other cases, it's traditional law enforcement drug investigations, which is you figure out who sold this person the drugs that killed them, and then working up working up the chain. Um, I think a, a good example of that most recently is when we indicted the two guys uh, last week in China. Uh, we were able to trace uh, drugs from China to two fatal overdoses, well, at least two fatal overdoses in Akron. And in one case, um, mother came home, found her child dead. She called the police. The police arrived there. Uh, they were able to use uh, her, her thumbprint to open up her, her phone uh, while she was still there, deceased, of course. And um, they saw that the last person she had talked to was a number who was, you know, they were talking about drugs. Um, they texted, acting as the girl, hey, I need some more. Uh, that drug dealer rolled up. Right and to the house. Right to the house. Drugs in his pocket, the same, exact same drugs that killed her. And so we were able to uh, make criminal cases off of that. You know, where did he get it? And, and, and work up the chain, just like you would uh, in any other uh, drug case if you've seen the movies. Um, so, so that's one example. On the flip side, I, I think uh, you certainly heard today and, and, and have heard in, in other meetings and gatherings uh, police officers talking about getting uh, users, getting people addicted into treatment rather than, than jail, if, if appropriate. Um, sometimes, you know, we've heard from people, jail's the best place for them because it, it sort of forces them to get sober. And in some cases that's true, and in some cases it, it isn't. But uh, talking to, you know, Commander Gary Gingell from Cleveland Police, who is, again, sort of straight out of central casting for, for the tough, swaggering cop, um, you know, he talks about you know, taking someone from Metro Health after they've stabilized over to Stella Maris to get them into treatment. So I think there's been a sea change both in how law enforcement investigates fatal overdoses, but also how they view uh, the, the, the users. Uh, we will always prosecute the dealers, the people who are profiting off this, the people who are bringing these drugs in. But I think there's a greater recognition uh, that somebody who is, 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 you know, racked with this sickness and is in the throes of this addiction um, sometimes jail is appropriate for them, but, but a lot of times treatment might be the better option. After the break, we hear from Tim Plancon from the DEA. He's going to introduce us to the Strike Force, a brand new and innovative program that was just rolled out. This Cover 2 podcast is sponsored by Relink.org. Relink.org is an online research tool that allows you to quickly locate addiction recovery and reentry resources in your area. It includes everything from treatment to housing and employment. Go to Relink.org today to find services or add a resource for free. With Relink.org, help is just three clicks away second half of the podcast, Tim Plancon from the DEA introduces us to a new and innovative program known as Strike Force. I in Cleveland, which had 41 law enforcement personnel as far as drug investigations, DEA task force, sworn task force officers, and now we're at 68 today. The Cleveland office itself has gone from 62 to 93, and, and those are significant resources for us because we continuously and always have worked with task force personnel and the other state and local counterparts. Um, is through the, since the beginning of the time in DEA, and we consistently do that. So what we've done to ramp that up even more, uh, fast forwarding to, to, to pretty close to now, is we've 
partnered up with the OCDEF Strike Force. So OCDEF is the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. It's funded out of the U.S. Department of Justice. And it, it's, uh, so basically they're, they're a huge, not only funding mechanism, but partner out of the Department of Justice uh, to, to, to help the different areas with whatever, uh, you know, well, with this epidemic in particular. So the strike force is, uh, should, well, it's actually officially up and running probably within a week or so, I think. It, yeah, we it, just need some final signatures, but right. it involves federal law enforcement, the Cleveland Division of Police, and various local law enforcement participants through the task force, as you mentioned. Right. And so, it's designed really to do. So it'll be co-located with where multiple different agencies will be together. Uh, federal agencies, state and local agencies, the FBI, ATF, HSI, and I'll start the slippery slope of acronyms that Many of you may not know what they mean or, or care. Um, but uh, so just multiple federal law enforcement and, and state and local law enforcement agencies. We partner very, very well with them already. This is a way to, to get together and have a, one big pot of funding to help pay for overtime from the investigatory expenses and things like that. Going dark uh, investigations, are, they're expensive. Um, wiretaps are very expensive. And, and so it's we have to pick and choose. And this strike force is to focus all that and try to pick the biggest and baddest and worst, most violent uh, the drug trafficking um, drug traffickers in the Cleveland or actually just in the northern Ohio area is, is the focus of that strike force. Next, Tim talks about how the opioid epidemic has evolved over the course of the last five years. Methamphetamine is, is coming right behind us. And, and I've been saying this for, for four years, and, and I can't say it loud enough. Methamphetamine is coming right behind us. It's already here. Our seizures of methamphetamine alone have over doubled. And just in just in this last year, one of the concerns is, is that users are, are, are using methamphetamine to uh, to kind of supplement their from, from getting sick uh, from from their opioid addiction. Um, whatever reason, the, well, I know the reason. The cartels are smart. These are business people. These aren't thugs on the street. They're not somebody that that uh, you know I, you know. If, if you think we're we're talking about people that in, in, they come up with business plans, they they have they have ideas. And they, and they want to market it. They're, that's their whole job, is, is to market drugs into the United States so they can create more addiction, they can create more problems. They don't really care about the problems, they care about making money. So whatever they're doing, if they see that they're creating too many problems with maybe fentanyl or heroin or heroin and fentanyl, they're going to continue to market other drugs so they can, they can make a profit. Methamphetamine is certainly one of them, which is another highly addictive drug. Next, Judge Joan Sinnenberg addresses the audience and talks about the evolution of the drug court over the past five years. We see so many people whose lives are broken. We see most of the people on my docket are parents, and most of the parents on my docket have lost custody of their children. Uh, there's rampant homelessness. Uh, Opiate-addicted women uh, who are pregnant, 86% of those pregnancies are unplanned, unexpected. And I didn't know that number until I said, what's going on in this courtroom? I come in every day and there's, there's just so many women who are pregnant. And so uh, evolving from that, just to serve the needs of our community, we have uh, created health programs through the County Board of Health, Women's Health Program and the Men's Health Program. And they are just that. The women come alone, they feel very comfortable. We try to educate them. And we're doing the same for the men so that they can be uh, as well treated. It doesn't always work. Uh, we have, just like the rest of everyone here, uh, we've served close to 260 people uh, on recovery court. We boast a 70% graduation rate. We have lost seven people to overdose deaths, and it hits very, very hard. Uh, so we feel the pain. We see the loss. And we also see that while you're afforded to get a criminal attorney if you're charged with a crime, 
the fallout includes issues to do with finances, kids, and housing. So, so many of our clients have lost their kids, so many don't know where they're going to live, and so many are getting sued or have consumer debt issues. During the conference, many new and innovative programs were discussed. One of those was a pro bono project. Judge Sinnenberg talks about that. Also evolving from this, we've created a pro bono project uh, that we kicked off in June. It's, it's Marty Murphy's here somewhere. I know that he helped us with this, and thank you for that. Uh, but we were just awarded a grant from the North Family Foundation, so we'll get some support in reaching out to the legal community uh, to hopefully help us Next, we're introduced to Metro Health's Office of Opioid Safety by Dr. Joan Papp. We really needed to start from the ground up, look at the way doctors are prescribing opioids, um, look at the way we are treating people when they are identified with opioid use disorder. And to that end, in the summer of 2017, we developed our Office of Opioid Safety to really take a comprehensive approach from the hospital system perspective on treating and preventing opioid use disorder. Our mission is to improve opioid safety throughout the community and the hospital through education, advocacy, and treatment. And when I talk about education, one of the ways that we do that is we educate the community. We have a staff of over 13 employees now who are dedicated and um, helping us to develop a curriculum to educate the community, just like we're doing here today, um, but also to educate our providers at the hospital to make sure that they're re-educated on safe opioid prescribing measures, making sure that they're compliant with new state and federal guidelines, um, and making sure that we're, we're holding uh, accountable our providers and, and talking to them when we see that they're not doing those things. Um, and we do that in a number of ways. We have two full-time um, opioid educators who are actually here with us today. Um, and we also um, have put together a, a full curriculum for, for providers, um, including uh, town halls that all providers have to attend, um, safe opioid prescribing. Um, we do simulation program um, that involves having a provider sit down and, and work with an actor to um, sort of role play, how to have a conversation with the person about changing their, uh, their, prescri their prescribing, um, addressing when opioid use disorder is going on, and, and really how to um, make things safer for them. Next, Dr. Papp talks about another innovative program where EMS leaves behind naloxone at homes of overdose victims. We were able to start the first ever naloxone distribution program through EMS. So essentially, if a person were to have an overdose that EMS responded to and that victim did not choose to be transported to a hospital, those, those uh, patients or their family members could be provided with the naloxone kit. Cleveland um, EMS also has a walk-in clinic downtown. Next, Scott Osicki, Adams Board CEO here in Cuyahoga County, reveals how recovery housing in Northeast Ohio has been late to the party to embrace medication-assisted treatment. There are about 50 sober houses that we have been uh, funding through Stella and through the Cleveland Treatment Center. So that's just about over 500 beds that we are supporting. And we continue to support that going through in, you know, in the future. And that's also part of our priorities that we have uh, recently set at the board. One thing that we really want to emphasize is the use of medication-assisted treatment. So what we're finding, though, is that most of the recovery houses or the sober housing 
really don't accept people with a medication-assisted treatment. So what we really want to do is change the perception of that. Because if a person has diabetes or heart disease, you'll be on a medication to help you through that. And that's the same with the medication-assisted treatment. So uh, we really want to, want to focus on that as well. But right now, we only have 12 recovery homes that are uh, medication-assisted uh, treatment ready to do that. So we want to want to really make sure and emphasize that the sober houses and we want to have learning uh, and teaching of the community to let them know that MAT is really important and that should be part of your sober living as well. In episode 90, we introduced Anchor ED, a program we found in Rhode Island where recovery coaches were put in every single ED in the state. Now that program has come to Northeast Ohio, and Scott talks about that. Right now, along with Metro Health, we are uh, funding a pilot program called Ascent ED. And what that is is that they're uh, in the emergency room after a person uh, is revived and stabilized from an overdose, that there is 24 hours a day a peer uh, recovery supporter, peer recovery coach, to come and actually meet with that person and let them know the importance of getting into detox and getting into recovery. And then they also help them navigate the system as well as help them through the recovery process. And, and that's another priority we have going forward in our funding this year, is the use of peer recovery support. Next, Dr. Robert Bales shares more on medication-assisted treatment. Over the past five years, we've really seen more and more scientific evidence that supports treatment, and treatment beyond one year on medication really improves long-standing recovery. So the, the science behind this has been mounting over the last several years. Um, at Cleveland Clinic, we're trying to increase the number of family doctors across our health system who are trained and licensed to provide um, buprenorphine products for medication-assisted treatment. Um, one way I think about this is family physicians are really good at managing chronic diseases over somebody's lifespan. And the conversation is starting to switch to say, opiate addiction in particular, and addiction in general is a chronic lifespan disease, and that should be in the purview of family medicine in conjunction with our partners, um, and no different than how we treat our diabetic patients. Um, I think there's really close analogies to how we approach somebody with addiction as to how we approach somebody with diabetes. Um, we're not gonna fix these problems in 30 days. Um, so we have seen a shift in the conversation from our leadership on, yes, we need to have this in our communities, in our community health centers, in the hands of our primary care doctors. Um, we're also seeing this at the medical school level. So I'm a professor at two medical schools, and I get more and more invitations to come and lecture to medical students, family medicine residents, on addiction. And so we've seen it starting to become more prevalent in our trainees as well. Um, so I think that really speaks to this is becoming a broader, a broader disease in primary care, and um, our goal for the next five years and actually the next year is to increase our number of providers across our health system. Um, the other thing I think about is primary care is a local problem. Most patients won't travel more than about five miles to see a family doctor. And addiction treatment has to be a local problem. You can't travel 20 and 30 miles to get a medication every single month. That's just not a reasonable thing. So we have to bring this into the communities where we're seeing this. And unfortunately, in Northeast Ohio, we're seeing this in every community. This concludes part one of this two-part series on the U.S. Attorney's Conference held on September 6, 2018, titled Opioids, 
a crisis still facing our entire community. Please join us next time for part two, where we'll hear about the innovative work of the Northeast Ohio Hospitals Consortium and much more. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.